This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Welcome to Community or Chaos, friends. Today we have with us two people who will be talking generally about health in New Zealand and provision of health. First, Professor Robin Gold, who will be here from 10, from 11 till 11.30. He's the Pro Vice Chancellor of the Commerce Department and Dean of Otago Business School. He's also the Director of the Center for Health Systems and has always had an interest in the economics of provision for health in New Zealand and elsewhere. And then we'll be ha- speaking to John Moore of the Democracy Project, which is hosted by Victoria University, and its aim is to enhance demo- New Zealand democracy and public life by promoting critical thinking. Well, welcome, uh, Robins. Good to talk to you again. Well, Morena, um, very nice to be here, Marvin, and thanks for the invite. Well, I guess we'll get right on to the subject. You co-offered a report on district health boards and the use of contracting out for medical services and outside consultations, which suggested there needed to be more transparency and, and it might not be the most efficient use of taxpayers' money. Could you briefly comment on this? You know, thank you. Um, so we, we have um, uh, been interested in this topic since at least uh, 2015 when we undertook the original research uh, into the, as you say, the contracting out of policy advisory work, uh, strategy work, um, assistance with sort of management projects, everything from organisational change through to information systems and so forth. So we've been really interested in uh, government expenditure uh, in this way, uh, and then especially focused on the healthcare sector. So uh, in 2015, we asked all district health boards, the Ministry of Health, Pharmac, uh, every agency involved in healthcare in this country, um, for their list of external contractors and consultants, um, how much they'd spent on the various different organisations. We also asked what the impact of that spending was. Uh, then we uh, repeated the exercise uh, in 2020. So we published two papers 
based on this work. And what we have found is that, uh, well, we've found a range of things. Uh, the first probably is that actually this is a very gray area uh, and there is a lack of public transparency uh, around this sort of expenditure. Uh, I suppose the second thing we found uh, was that um, there's a massive amount of money being spent in this way, uh, massive amounts. So in our most recent exercise, uh, it's over $400 million over a three-year period going out of the district health board budgets alone. Um, so it's huge amounts of money. Uh, probably the third thing we found was that actually the DHBs have really struggled to provide the information that we have asked for. Uh, they don't collect it in any systematic way. They don't have central registers uh, of the contractors and consultants that they are paying off and really large sums of money to. Um, and they, and it's they don't, they're not able to um, uh, provide information on the impact of the work. Um, we, we're not able to obtain that information at all. Probably a good proportion of them just don't have a register at all. Uh, we asked them in 2015, yes or no, do you have a central register of contractors and consultants? Because we were having such difficulty getting the information in the first place. Some of them wanted us to pay them to provide the information we were asking for because they said they had to collect it. That's when we asked, do you have a register or not, yes or no. Um, uh, the, the, the other issue, I guess, that um, underpins all of this, and it's come up in the media quite recently because Radio New Zealand have, have paid some belated attention to the work that we've, we've been doing and uh, ran, ran a couple of stories over the space of a week, about three or four weeks ago, and it came to the attention of the Health Select Committee, um, the opposition health spokesman, uh, Dr. Shane Retty, uh, really that this is a, a quite a serious issue of public accountability and the Health Select Committee is not receiving the information that it should be receiving in terms of how this expenditure is being reported. So, so I've given you quite a long-winded answer, but, you know, it's a lot of money. Um, it's a grey area. Uh, there's a lot of money being made. Uh, in this way by private consultancies and there needs to be more attention paid to transparency. Okay, so what's your solution? Well, well we think that um, we, we have various recommendations that we've been making, having studied this very closely. And, you know, the Health Select Committee and the government really needs to be paying a lot more attention to this area and ensuring at least that there is transparency, open accountability uh, for this, you know, really quite vast sum of money. It's 1.5% of the health budget, we estimate, uh, is being spent in this way. Um, and, you know, it's public money. We need to know where it's going um, and what we're getting for it. Uh, probably the, the second thing is that there needs to be uh, more of a focus on retaining some of the sort of skills that are being paid for in-house, uh, because you're talking here um, about money that's being paid to private companies, uh, and so the information is being held by them, uh, not by government, only, only by what is received in terms of reports that come back and so forth. So there's a sort of a lack of a build-up of institutional knowledge. Now, if you go back to the idea of government and civil service, um, in the kind of the old days in speech parks, uh, a civil service was there to give um, sort of longitudinal uh, build-up of institutional knowledge over time. So you had a civil service able to provide free and frank and sound 
advice, independent advice to the government, regardless of who they are. So if you build up capacity in-house, it's actually really, really important. If you're contracting it out, um, I, I think you're eroding that ability to provide you know, really good sound advice. So that's probably the second thing that we've recommended. We, we think there needs to be an independent group, certainly within the healthcare system. New Zealand is unusual in not having uh, an independent um, sort of government-funded body that provides um, you know, everything from sort of um, in, independent analysis of policy, um, evaluation of policy changes um, can help with these sorts of questions that um, are going out to private consultancies for. Uh, it just doesn't exist. And out of that 400 million, you know, you probably for a quarter of that or much less could actually build up a really good mm-hmm. unit within government to carry out this kind of work. The kind of thing you're talking about hasn't been really popular since the late 80s. I mean, I understand one of the reasons for getting rid of the public works uh, division, the Ministry of Works, was that they didn't really want a government planning office. Uh, the uh, neoliberals who were in charge at the time. So in some ways, it's anthem to uh, orthodox economics. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Um, I, I mean, it's a real issue. And, um, you know, there probably is, I think, some quite serious conflicts of interest as well um, that are having to be managed at the moment. I mean, you've got the, um, the current health reforms that are going on are being managed largely by consultants who are both advising on the reforms themselves themselves as well as um, you know writing all the documents and so forth uh, and then overseeing the implementation process through the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. So you know there, there's become I, I think over time there has become uh, sort of an it, it, we, we've evolved to a point where we now just accept that there is this um, role for uh, external consultants in the direct business of government. And uh, I, I think we need to be questioning that. Uh, I mean, many of the people who are providing the consultancy advice are ex-civil servants, they're ex-healthcare um, leaders. Um, you think about the current reforms that are being led largely by people who've had significant uh, experience working in the public sector and then have gone to work for a consultancy and now being hired back at you know, anywhere from, I mean, if they're really senior, they're probably on seven or $800 an hour um, the junior staff, you know, the youngsters who've just done a degree in economics or um, accounting or something like that, or management um, or political science, they'll be being billed out at probably $250 an hour. Um, so, you know, the, 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 there's a conflict of interest as well, but you, you're absolutely right about the, the, um, the prevailing thinking around um, what should be done inside government and what shouldn't be. And I think there's just, you know, we, we've, we've evolved to a position where we don't trust our own people to do our own work, and so we contract it out. Actually, if I was in had my way, I'd much rather trust the public service than I would the corporate executives, the people that make a million dollars a year. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, different people will have different views on this, of course. Um, I mean, uh, somebody said that if you pay... Um, nuts, you get 
monkeys. But if you load the trough, you get hogs. Yeah, that, 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 that's really funny. Um, <laughs> so do you think the government's going to listen to you? Well, I mean, you have got some publicity, and you've even got some attention for the, the opposition party. Yeah, I think. Yeah, there, there are at, at the at the foundation of this all are really important issues of transparency and public accountability for very large sums of money, and um, uh, that's what it's about at the end of the day. Um, uh, we, we, I mean, we estimate that, or the amount of the amount of money that we estimate has been being spent. Because again, we're only able to estimate; we don't actually have all the full figures in front of us. Um, but we estimate that it's at least the amount of money that is spent through the Health Research Council for health research in this country. So that's all health research. Um, it's more than that that's going out uh, through the DHPs for consulting services. If the government hired people in the long run and had a department to do this work, wouldn't it actually save them money as well as give them institutional knowledge? Yeah, no, and that's, that's, our, that's our argument as well, exactly. Um, and so you build up institutional knowledge. Um, and, you know, I, I think of universities uh, as, as, a, um, as a, a point of comparison. I mean, universities hire people for their expertise. They build up a, a career, a group, a whole department of people who have expertise in certain areas, and, um, and they bring in new people and induct them. And, um, and, you know, government traditionally worked in the same way. Today, um, you know, certainly since the civil service became um, deregulated in the late 1980s, uh, no longer sort of functions in that way. I mean, you do have people who are career civil servants who have a lot of expertise, but there's quite a lot of uh, turnover these days, I think, within the civil service. Um, and there is not that focus on sort of retention of um, institutional knowledge, and instead it's contracted in. Has the government responded at all? Uh, no, no, no. We've not had any response to the well, That's quite interesting. Um, other than the response of the Health Select Committee chair uh, and... Um, uh, her response was that um, this was not necessarily their job to um, scrutinise the spending in that way. Um, but as I say... Um, Whose job would it be then? Well, um, that's a very good question. The, uh, my understanding is that, you know, certainly through the responses in the media to our work um, brought about by the Radio NZ reporting, uh, my understanding is that uh, the Health Select Committee may invite the Auditor General to a meeting to discuss this work. And if so, I think you know, we will have um, really achieved something through, through the research if that happens. Okay. By the way, friends, you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to uh, podcasting going to community or chaos, and we're listening to Professor Robin Gall talking about health care and health reform and the the direction for the future. What do you think about the public health reforms 
that are proposed in New Zealand, and who is the government consulting and getting advice from in this process of reform? No, that's a that's a good good question. Um, look, I, I think the uh, the current set of reforms are really important, um, and uh, they're important for a range of reasons. And I support the general direction of the reforms. Um, uh, at one level. At another level, I think there is a lot of work to be done and they are not going to achieve their goals, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, the, the DHBs uh, ha, ha, have never worked in the way in which they were meant to. Um, there are tw- they're basically 20 fiefdoms, 20 silos. Um, they are too hospital-centric. Uh, they are... Um, They've never brought in the public voice in the way in which was anticipated. There's a whole lot of sort of reasons for why the DHBs really have done their time and need to be disestablished. Having a national body, Health NZ, uh, uh, is, I think, the best model for New Zealand. We had that model in the late 1990s, uh, and it started to work quite well before the DHBs uh, then um, replaced the what was then the Health Funding Authority. Um, yeah, we're a small country. Uh, we need to be focused on national consistency, and that's really what Health NZ and the reforms are about, trying to get equity across the population and across access to services uh, around the country. And that has been impossible with the DHBs. It's really, really inequitable at a, a cross-country level. So establishing the Māori Health Authority is, I think, you know, well and truly overdue. Um, in the uh, early 1990s, uh, when the market-based health reforms were being proposed, there was a rep- proposal right back then to create something similar to a Māori health authority coming from iwi. The government at the time um, was not interested in letting that go ahead. So, you know, over 30 years later, we're getting a Māori health authority, and I think it's a, it's a profound move and a really important one. Um, so, you know, I, I support the reforms in principle. In, in practice, I think they're going to be really, really struggling to achieve their goals, and that is because they haven't sorted out the funding arrangements. Uh, the, um, the funding is going to continue being separated between uh, um, hospitals and primary care. Um, so that is creating two separate systems, and that's wrong, in my view. You need to be able to create one system in a region so that they can work collaboratively. Your primary care doctors and nurses and allied professionals and in the community can work collaboratively with those who work in a hospital to work out where patients should be treated, by whom, and then how the funding uh, supports those arrangements. That's not going to happen. Uh, And so I think it's a fundamental flaw. The second fundamental flaw with the system, and and these flaws, by the way, they they date back to the foundations that were laid uh, in the uh, late 1930s, early 1940s with the compromise made when the government at the time was trying to set up a national health service. So the second compromise that was made was uh, permitting uh, the private sector to um, uh, function alongside the public sector when it comes to hospital services. Uh, And so um, many of your listeners will have had the um, advantage of being able to pay to go and see a private specialist if they have a non-urgent treatment because they will know that it's going to be months and years. months or years before they'll be treated publicly. 
And so this was the compromise made, was that there could be this parallel private sector that the same doctors would be able to work in, uh, as well as the public sector. Uh, this is deeply inequitable, and the people that are most harmed are the less well-off, uh, Māori and the Pacifica people, and the government has at its heart equity with these reforms, and it's not going to happen. It is just not going to happen. Actually, most people probably in New Zealand can't really afford health insurance. No, and There's so no me, mi- it's not a minority of people in New Zealand that can't afford oh, it. No. And so to me, um, I mean, you either pay out of pocket, um, you know, thousands and thousands, um, you know, mortgage your house or you have insurance. And to me, um, we need a fundamental rethink of how we, how we fund healthcare. And uh, I've come to the conclusion that we need to uh, think about social insurance, which is the European model. Um, and so that's like ACC, it's compulsory insurance that you, uh, it's uh, billed through payroll, um, and employers, and then government also provides funding. Um, and uh, your tax goes down as a consequence because you're being payroll billed to fund the social insurance. And what social insurance, what's important about it is solidarity um, and equity, because regardless of who you are, um, regardless of wealth, uh, et cetera, um, you have access to the same uh, services on the list of services that the social insurance body is going to fund. So that will be all services, and they will simply pay private providers or public providers based on the needs that the patients turn up with. It's not perfect, and no healthcare funding system is, but I don't think our current system is going to ever deliver on the goal of equity without major regulatory changes made by the government to shift private practice into the public sector so that capacity can be boosted and without major funding boosts. So I've concluded that we need a social insurance model. Now, the social insurance model, does everybody pay the same amount? Well, what if, I mean, one of the problems with private insurance is most of us can't really afford private insurance, especially and often people don't think about it too much until they get toward old age and they just can't get private insurance that they can afford if they can get it at all. Yep. So with a good social insurance system, well-designed, you shouldn't need private insurance. Um, okay, and, can you give us some examples? So, um, so just to, I'll talk in theoretical terms first. But, um, so it would be indexed to your income. Um, and so it might be a percentage of your income. It could, and again, these are decisions that would need to be made uh, by a government. So you might have a much higher rate for people on higher incomes and a much lower rate on lower incomes. Uh, you might um, have more government subsidy going into um, different areas uh, of the population, you know, socioeconomic status and so forth, to ensure that the insurance is affordable. And if you look at Japan, for example, They've had social insurance for generations and uh, they have three different schemes and, um, uh, and they do exactly what I was talking about. They're subsidised at different levels. Uh, there are different levels of government subsidy going in. Uh, but what's common about those three different schemes is the, uh, the payout is exactly the same off the three different schemes. So whether you're in the civil service scheme or the large private corporates, scheme or whether you're in a small business scheme, um, the payout is exactly the same. It makes no difference. You will get exactly the same access to orthopedic surgery or cataract treatment. 
uh, or GP services than a person in the other scheme. So if you were unemployed for a long time, say there was a depression, would you still get covered? Yes, you would. Yes. Yep. So that would be catered for in the scheme. So generally, social insurance uh, covers everyone in the population, and there will be a um, a backstop for people who are unemployed or on sickness benefits or, um, you know, all, all sorts of other needs that they might have. So no one is excluded. Having to wait for a long time actually is poor medicine, isn't it? I mean, also sometimes when you wait by the time you can get the needed service, uh, your condition may have gotten so much worse that it's a bit too late. Oh, absolutely. I mean, people suffer dreadfully and uh, their health suffers dreadfully and the costs uh, exponentially increase as a result. And there are many, many anecdotes uh, that uh, your listeners will have from friends and family and personal experience. Uh, And if you talk to any, any hospital doctor, or any GP, they'll say the same thing. They've seen deteriorating conditions. They'll say this should have been treated eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 months ago, and now we're now we're really having to do a lot more than we should have had to do at greater cost. Okay. How much more time do you have before you? Have um, to I'm going to go on about four, four minutes, I'm sorry. Okay, then we'll, I'll let you run on what you think is most important for the next four minutes. If that's all right with you? It, absolutely. So you want me to just say just what I think? say what you think is most important. Yeah, look, I, I think, as I, as I said before, um, in terms of our healthcare system, um, yeah, we, we have a really good healthcare system in many ways. Um, we've, we've got some good foundations there. We have a strong foundation on um, general practice and family medicine. Uh, that sector, however, is under quite a lot of stress and strain. Um, there are not a lot of incentives to go into general practice, uh, and that's because the pay rates are lower and the work is quite demanding. But we have a, a good healthcare system in many ways. Um, uh, we have a committed set of healthcare professionals who are, you know, really trustworthy and reliable. You know, we can depend on them, uh, which is not the case in every country. What sits around them, however, is a system that lets them down, and um, and that's where the government, I think, needs to be a lot more progressive. Uh, in its current thinking, and that's where it needs to start to think really, really hard about how it can bring together the primary care along with the hospital care and build a local healthcare system. Um, and so that, as I said before, is about aligning the funding, bringing together the funding and putting it between the two and saying, you know, here, here's your funding. Now you you need to work together in terms of how you're going to allocate that funding out across the local healthcare system. Now, DHBs were never able to do that because they uh, were hospital-centric systems uh, and the funding went into the DHB who owned the hospital and then they were meant to pay out to primary care to run general practices. So to me, it's taking the funding out of the hospital or out of the DHB equivalent and out of primary care and putting it in the middle and saying, you know, you work together in order to obtain this funding. And then the second issue, as I said, is sorting out the uh, the funding infrastructure per se. And that, that's a big job. I think we need a, um, I think the government, a bold government would set up a commission to look at um, social insurance uh, with a goal of establishing social insurance. 
not whether we should do this or not, but actually of trying to create a system uh, as we have with ACC. And ACC is not, not perfect, but uh, it serves many people very, very well, and it's agnostic of provider. It doesn't matter uh, whether it's a public or a private provider. They, they contract with providers who will give timely uh, treatment to people who need accident and injury uh, compensation support. So that, that, those would be my little um, takes, uh, and then sort out the consultancies. Well, thanks a lot, Robin, for coming on, and I hope you continue your work, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this again at oh, great, some point. Great, great pleasure, Marvin. Thank you very much for the opportunity. All the very, very best. Thanks. We'll, we'll be going to John Moore in a couple of minutes after a piece of music, and uh, we were very lucky to have Robin Gold do this work, not only come on the radio, but be part of this work for looking at how health care can be more equitable and more equally provided to all New Zealanders. But if you don't believe that it can 
friends, we're now speaking with John Moore of the Democratic Project, which is hosted by Victoria University and aims to enhance New Zealand democracy and public life by promoting critical thinking. Welcome, um, John. You were listening to this program. Do you have any immediate comments you'd like to make? I was. On the... Um, yeah, so I, I think... Uh, I think Robin, like like a lot of uh, um, progressive people in universities and throughout the community, recognise that that there's a lot of problems with the healthcare system in New Zealand, both the private and public healthcare system, and, and there's a um, a huge problem of inequity uh, in terms of the type of healthcare that that people have access to. It's not equal. Uh, it's not equal in, in, in terms of, as was highlighted by Robin, in terms of, of Maori access to healthcare, Pacifica access to healthcare, and I think as you alluded to as well, the general question of class that the, that the majority of, of, of working class people and um, especially poorer people, unemployed people, uh, don't have the type of health care. Well, if you're working in a supermarket, you probably can't afford health insurance. No, no exactly. So it, it isn't just people that are unemployed. It isn't even people who happen to be brown or black or even female. It's about people that don't have decent income, which is yeah, probably so most that, that, of the New Zealanders. Yeah, so there's an intersection here of ethnicity, uh, indigeneity status, and class that are all working uh, to, I mean, to create instance, a system if of you're And you're head of a large corporation, and maybe it's uh, Sea Lords or one of the Maori corporations, you won't have to worry about insurance. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no doubt that having private insurance gives you greater access to healthcare. So th there's a huge problem with inequity at the moment. The question is, are the type of reforms that are being advocated, say, by Robin, the social insurance scheme, as well as um, pushing for more transparency within um, the, the, the health sector, is this going to lead to more equity? Is this going to lead to uh, a more egalitarian situation in, in, in terms of more people having access to the high type of health care um, they deserve? He's not it's talking about yet. private insurance, I don't believe. No. So that's, well, it, it, it's questionable because the social insurance model, uh, for example, uh, one of the countries that uses it, uses it uh, most efficiently in a sense, is Germany. Uh, and, and it's similar to our um, uh, KiwiSave system. So, yes, it's, it's a system that's um, compulsory. Uh, everyone who works has to pay into a social insurance scheme for their health care. The employer uh, has to pay a certain percentage as well, as well as the state. Um, um, and, like Robin said, if you're unemployed, then... Um, um, Obviously, you don't have the money to pay into uh, the social insurance scheme, but you're, in theory, at least, you're, you're given the same access as someone who's working and paying into the social insurance scheme. In Germany, though, you do have competing insurance companies that, that employees, that workers uh, can align with in terms of, of where that money's going. And in Germany, even though it's a state-regulated and state-controlled system, 
different insurance companies do uh, give different benefits mm -hmm. of, in terms of healthcare. So it's not actually equitable in those terms. Mm -hmm. And that's the danger if you, if you introduce this, this state controlled social insurance scheme in New Zealand, I would say inevitably you'll, you'll have um, uh, competing insurance companies uh, um, involved in that, as you do for KiwiSaver, uh, there would be heavy lobbying uh, by insurance companies and, and, and other private um, uh, businesses to be involved in the system because there'd be so much money involved, uh, so much potential for profits. Uh, and, and that would, uh, I would say, um, more than likely lead to uh, degrees of uh, inequity mm. and, and different schemes. Why couldn't the government just set providing, up an insurance uh, company? Uh, different ACC is wholly owned by the government, isn't it? Well, that, that's, that, that's the alternative. And we kind of have that with ACC. Now, um, I, mean, I, I guess this is where I disagree with Robert. I think ACC is a completely broken system uh, that, that does not deliver adequately. Uh, and a lot of that's to do with funding, but a lot of it's got to do with, with the sort of corporate model that ACC is based on. So it's it's a sort of like a, a, a faux um, uh, profit-centred company. Now, we know it's, it's a state organisation with a whole lot of regulations, but it's meant to act as though like a private corporation. So it's not meant to run out of money, for example. It's meant to uh, uh, balance the books, so to say. And that just leads to um, a, a, an adequate um, uh, provision of healthcare by ACC. Now, ACC, is all right. you, you have to have an accident. It, it can't be just an illness. It has to be accident-related. But ACC is always shifting the goalposts of what's defined as an accident, what type of um, healthcare they'll provide, how much they'll pay, etc., etc. And you're dealing with faceless bureaucrats. And that's a danger, danger with the social insurance scheme, that it just leads to a greater layer of administration and bureaucrats. And you're having to, I don't know if you've dealt with ACC, but it, it can be an absolute nightmare. You're Actually, up, you're I, I won't go into that, yeah. but I have have um, and I found it problematic in my case. Yeah, um, my, my wife, for example, had a back injury. Uh, she was a cleaner mm. at a, a hotel. Um, that the as is the current situation, um, uh, private businesses that have enough capital and they have enough equity can self-insure themselves under the ACC. And they denied her healthcare for over a year. And it was a real battle uh, and a real battle with ACC, who just ringing them up, stuck on the phone for two hours waiting for someone to talk to, and then just saying, uh, no, nah, it's not our problem. And I just think if ACC is the model we're looking at for social insurance, then social insurance won't provide um, uh, equity. Um, if there's another model for social insurance, like you said, that, that's more centralised, that's more uh, controlled by the government and guarantees certain um, outcomes and equity, uh, then it could work a lot better than the current system. But if ACC is the, the model to look at, then I think it, it will just inevitably be um, a system that doesn't provide any more um, um, health benefits. Well, you think that um, democracy, democracy Project will look into this and maybe make some recommendations themselves? Yeah, so, I mean, the Democracy Project um, has a range of people involved who come from different um, viewpoints. Um, you know, even has writers who come from the right at times, uh, the writers who come from the left or the far left. Uh, and, and so there's, uh, I, I think what the Democracy Project provides is a discussion. 
uh, on these issues, but uh, the Dominic Relief Project isn't afraid to provide uh, radical solutions. So certainly the social insurance uh, model is a radical solution and that it would lead to uh, massive significant reforms in, in healthcare um, it, it, and could, in theory, lead to more uh, equity in, um, in healthcare access for the general population. Uh, but there's lots of critiques to be made of that um, as well. And uh, I guess one thing that we believe in the Democracy Project generally is that um, top-down models uh, or sort of structural solutions uh, that are advocated by um, people who are very sincere, uh, whether they're with in academia, within the private sphere, uh, within NGOs. This is a very top-down model. It, it, it's people who are part of the elite uh, uh, in, in various ways advocating reforms and, and, and lobbying the government for these reforms. And there's no real popular input into it. And that's the problem. There's, um, um, with, with countless reforms we've seen over the last few decades, there's often very little public input okay. or and I think what's really needed, I would argue, is a, is a mass militant movement to push for true equity within, within the healthcare system. Mm. And the, government, the government's not going to budge unless it feels threatened, unless it feels there's a, there's a social movement from below that can push uh, for real reform. But what are you pushing for? I mean, are you going to go back to the, have every district make their own their own health decisions and so if you happen to be living in one where it works it goes well but if you're living in a place where it doesn't work you don't get much yeah so I think that, that um, I think you're pointing to uh, some of the problems already with the DHB system and, and previous systems that sort of I mean sometimes things that come up from the ground don't work necessarily better than a centralized System. No, but when, when, I'm, when, when I'm talking about the need for um, a, a mass movement from below, I'm not talking about a whole lot of decentralised uh, struggles for healthcare within the, the particular city or town. I think, as you've seen in America, where there, there is a movement uh, towards more um, equitable and, and publicly provided uh, healthcare or publicly funded healthcare, at least. Um, this this is a national movement for national reform throughout the whole country. And, and I guess that's why I'm talking about in New Zealand. Um, I'm not talking about uh, decentralised, localised uh, struggles that are only about their local hospital. I'm talking about uh, the need for a, a campaign for significant reform. That, that okay, what kind of reform are you talking about? Well, um, uh, First of all, I think Robin's absolutely right in saying that there's a lack of transparency. Uh, you know, there's um, uh, money going into the private sector from the health uh, care sector in terms of um, consultants. Uh, there's, there's incredibly well-paid surgeons and, and doctors who are switching between the private sector and the public sector, uh, making significant amounts of money. That all needs to be transparent. Uh, there needs to be democratic control. So the DHB system, in theory, um, you elect people uh, to the local health board, but really it's a farce. So there needs to be, um, uh, whether that's um, a centralised body where people are elected on that body, uh, where major bureaucrats are just 
um, uh, uh, have to be elected um, as well, for example. There should be democratic scrutiny over the bureaucrats, high-up bureaucrats who are running the system. Um, and, there needs to, and, and there just needs to be guaranteed right to What help. systems would you point to? Would you point to you know, Sweden or would you point to Finland or, or the English uh, National Health Service? I think there's advantages and disadvantages in all those systems. I guess the good thing about the, the British national health system or the English national health system is that it does cover uh, uh, primary health care, it covers GPs, it covers dental care. And in New Zealand, we, we, we have a system. I think we don't Robin really have Gold suggested that every, that's part of the problem is that uh, the division between primary care and hospital care. Oh, I think Robert's and people right. line up at uh, emergency rooms because they can't afford fifty dollars to see their GP very often. Yeah, but I would I would argue for a, a fully funded, free um, uh, um, healthcare system at all levels. Uh, so I, uh, I I don't think there's any real rationale except for saving money and protecting the interest of of, of, of um, various healthcare private providers. There's no real rationale for saying that um, most GPs should be private. Uh, uh, yes, there's government funding uh, when you go to your GP, but they're basically operating on a, on a profit basis, not on a social need basis. Pharmacies, pharmacies are predominantly a private profit-making institution. Yes, there's subsidies for um, uh, medication, for drugs, but again, they're, um, they're part of the private system. Dental care is overwhelmingly uh, private. So I think there's an argument that all these levels of health care should be integrated into a system based on social need, not on private profit. They're actually talking about something similar to uh, what England has, where they include dentistry. They inc all health care is covered. Yeah, and it's, I mean, um, the thing is, that's going to lead to a political struggle and an economic struggle. So the type, we go back, if we go back 80 years and we look at the type of reforms that the first Labour government brought in, there were discussions over bringing in primary health care, GPs in the system, some, some degrees in the dental system, but there was a huge pushback uh, by certain interest groups that didn't want to become part of the public system, wanted yeah. to remain uh, with um, basically with that, that profit-centred model whether it comes to GPs or dental cares, even though we know there's huge amounts of state money being, being poured into uh, these private institutions, whether it's GPs, private medical centres, um, in some cases dentists, uh, ACC money is flowing into the private sphere as well. So to me it comes down to a question of can you have a mixed model? And I think the social insurance model uh, points to a mixed model of, 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 of private care and public people care um, with that funding coming through a rather complicated system from employers, from the state and from employees, uh, do you have a, a true public health care system where everything's free uh, and, and everyone has equal access to that and it's under um, various degrees of democratic control and transparency uh, or do you have a completely private system? Uh, where it's a profit-centred system. So I think there's three different models here. And, I, yeah, I think we should be open to discussing the benefits and the inadequacies of all those three models. Okay. How do you get a 
I could imagine the, a government, this particular government, though it takes a lot of imagination, supporting a, an insurance scheme. I can't imagine them supporting a, a fully nationalized public scheme. Um, I think, where do you, how do you go from A to B? I mean, I would probably agree with you that um, the British model and some of the other Scandinavian models are probably more equitable than um, a dual system with insurance. But how do you get there? Yeah, so do we compromise and do we um, um, advocate only mm. what we think is possible or that governments mm. could take up? Uh, or do we go for gold and advocate for what we um, really want? And we might not get there or we might not get there um, uh, to the level uh, we want, but um, or uh, or do we just stick with what we've got, uh, be cynical and say nothing's going to change? Um, I think people who who advocate compromises or third way approaches uh, um, uh, should be careful what they wish for. Uh, that that uh, a social insurance um, system, in theory, uh, could lead to uh, greater degrees of equity, uh, but it's such a complicated system and bureaucratic system in terms of funding. You know how that funding's. Uh, uh, um, uh, brought about through taxation, through employer um, 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 money being put into the schemes, through the state, through possibly private insurance schemes as well, and a whole level of bureaucracy, uh, that it can lead to a whole lot of costs, and it can lead to inequity in that you're suddenly having to deal with a whole new layer of bureaucracy at different levels, whether that's the insurance company that you've opted for, whether that's uh, the state health provider, um, uh, whether that's even your employer, maybe. Uh, and I think bureaucracy can lead to inequity in, in itself, and in that, yes, you might be um, uh, entitled to this health care, but you're having to be stuck on the phone uh, waiting, waiting to talk to a state or private bureaucrat about what you're actually um, entitled to. Uh, so I think... I would argue go for gold. Uh, um, and if the system can't provide that, uh, I mean, uh, then um, damn the system, in a sense. If the government can't provide that, damn the government. But there needs to be mass democratic input. You need to win people over. You can't just uh, advocate certain, um, um, whether a, a fully funded universal healthcare system based, based on social need or a mixed model with social insurance. Whatever you're advocating uh, needs to have that mass input and there needs to be that scrutiny from the public uh, and, and, and whether it's from trade unions, NGOs, etc. cetera. Uh, and so I think if you have bold imagination, uh, uh, you can go beyond what's possible. Uh, um, what possible? What what is possible? What is achievable? Uh, is always a construct in a sense. Uh, we're stuck in this certain mode of what we believe Labour could do or what we believe could be achieved from the system. Um, in America, you know, the idea that you could have a single payer system would have seemed absurd. That 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 mainstream politicians could advocate a single payer system in America would just seem absurd, you know, a decade or so ago. But now, um, 
this has captured a large amount of the public um, imagination uh, of, and, and what has been seen as possible has now changed and expanded. And so that's why I think going for uh, compromises uh, uh, often, uh, yeah, is a dangerous path to go down. Okay, where do you get the political strength to do this? Because, I mean, we had a in the late 30s, the Labour government had a huge amount of support. They were new, and they were uh, not tied to promises and contracts they'd made before or interests they'd made before, and yet they weren't able to do it. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, uh, and, and that points to... Uh, difficulties, uh, but that also points to the dangers of compromise. And certainly, the first Labour government uh, uh, felt the pressure from business interests, uh, private interests, uh, um, private doctors, for example, and uh, compromised. Um, uh, if it had pushed through with a, a fully, fully public funded um, um, healthcare system, um, would, it, would it have achieved those goals? Um, Possibly, but possibly not. Uh, but the fight was worth having. The political struggle uh, was worth having. And I think if, if political parties, you know, ostensibly sort of parties of social justice like Labour, um, actually push for reforms and show that the, the need for a social political struggle against certain interest groups, it can lead to a buy-in. It can lead to greater mm. degrees of support. Um, at the moment, we know that virtually all the political parties in Parliament, whether it's uh, Labour, National, the Greens, etc., are very top-down parties with small membership. Uh, they often um, uh, advocate very sort of technocratic or structural reforms uh, without trying to get a big buy-in from the public or um, or various um, interest groups or trade unions, etc. And I think that's a general problem problem with bringing about reform. Uh, or, or progressive changes in our society now and that we don't have uh, these adequate mass social movements, including we don't have mass social political parties anymore. They're often quite elitist. Um, but there's hope. Uh, look at Amazon. Uh, look at the campaign for unionisation of Amazon uh, in America. And, and this has been a very much a bottom-up uh, campaign that's fighting some of the most powerful people in the world. And it's achieved goals. Okay. You've got about one minute. And so what would you like, what more would you like to say on this subject? Is it the political parties that need to change or how we get from A to B? Uh, I think all those factors. Uh, I think, um, one, uh, I, I guess um, in some ways we don't want to be too dogmatic and we don't want okay. to say the Thank you for one system that's the best okay. system for providing healthcare. Thanks for coming on, and you've given us a lot to think about, and we will okay, get together again. Thanks and a lot. Bye. Check out the Democracy Project website. <laughs> okay. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.